Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. All right, so no major announcements at this time, but I hope you've had a chance to check out the CanMed 2022 presentations and panel videos on the CanMed archive at canmedevents.com. I also hope you're keeping up with us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed events. And I hope you've signed up for email alerts because we will be announcing details about our CanMed 23 event later this month. Also, I'll put this request at the top of the episode this time, but if you enjoy the podcast and want to help us out, the best thing you can do is leave us a review. Those reviews are a signal to the algorithms and the podcast apps that suggest new shows to users, that this is a quality program. So I'll provide a link in the show notes so it's easy for you to find, and we really appreciate your help. This episode, we welcome back Marcus Roggin, President and Chief Scientific Officer at Delic Labs. Marcus has been in the cannabis industry since 2014 and has held several executive positions in analytical and production companies. His research into process optimization and analytical methods have been recognized with a number of awards, and he has become a trusted advisor and mentor to multiple startups, startup accelerators, and organizations, including CanMed. At Delic Labs, Marcus and his team have spent the past two years developing analytical methods for psilocybin and other psychedelics, which is an emerging medicinal industry that's following in the footsteps of the cannabis industry. During our conversation, we discuss how the regulations in Canada make it more favorable for psychedelic research, what does psilocybin medicine look like and how is it created, whether psilocybin will become a mass market recreational product, how psilocybin analytics differs from cannabinoid analytics, the difference between psilocybin and psilocin, what types of impurities and contaminants are a concern with psilocybin products, the process of discovering new tryptamine compounds in psychedelic mushrooms, and the future research projects that Marcus is working on, including looking at psilocybin extraction and optimal storage conditions. Before we get to my conversation with Marcus, I do want to thank this episode's sponsor, Agilent Technologies. Whether you manufacture or test cannabis, you face the challenge of delivering high-quality products increasing sample volume, and meeting emerging regulations. Agilent offers best-in-class cannabis and hemp analysis solutions featuring robust instruments, software, services, and consumables. Their team of experts can develop, implement, and optimize methods to get you up and running quickly. For more information, visit agilent.com chem cannabis. Okay. And without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Marcus Roggin. Good afternoon, Marcus. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. So... Psilocybin seems to be the next big thing in natural medicine. 
states, they're beginning to allow it to be used for a variety of conditions. And I think most experts expect it will follow a similar path to cannabis, where eventually psilocybin products will be sold in dispensaries to qualified patients. And perhaps one day, it'll also be available for adult use. But before any of that can happen, there needs to be proper testing. And that's what I want to talk with you about. So first, Marcus, please tell the people a bit about who you are, what you do, and how you got involved in psilocybin testing. Okay. Um, so again, thank you for having me. And sure, I'm happy to uh, answer the questions that I can from a chemistry background. So and chemistry background, here is the name of the game. I have a PhD in chemistry. Uh, which the academic career eventually brought me to North America, uh, where I then started the cannabis industry. So you ask it about how did I get to psilocybin or uh, psychedelic compounds? Like most people in the industry nowadays, they came from cannabis. Mm -hmm. So I had uh, built and operated a research laboratory for cannabis in Canada. So we were licensed by Health Canada to do cannabis research. We were associated or um, friendly with the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And uh, we did a lot of weird and wonderful research. So how did I get to psychedelics? Health Canada carved out a licensing uh, pathway to do psychedelic research in a legal framework. So um, things that lots of people... Uh, Lots of people in, North, uh, in the U.S. cannot ex uh, imagine that uh, the compound of interest is legal. You can use a credit card to order it on the Internet and get it sent by the Canadian mail or by, by the mail to you. Uh, that is possible in Canada. So here we are and we are able to work with cannabis, psychedelic compounds um, and do a lot of process research and analytical research. And now in Canada, the regulations, is that is it opened up mainly for research or can you know consumers go online and, and place an order? For cannabis, yes. So a cannabis is recreational legal. Right. Uh, so the um, provincial governments, so like the state governments in the US, they have opened web stores. So I would go to the web store of the British Columbia government and order cannabis, and then it gets sent to me. Uh, that is not the case for psychedelics. So psychedelics okay. um, have been carved out under a regulation aspect of uh, like experimental drug um, that when initially it was only medical trials on psychedelic compounds, so pure psilocybin synthesized. Um, there are, I think handful of trials on actual psychedelic mushrooms and then other psychedelic compounds like MDMA. And uh, if the Canadian government or the Health Canada authorities approve a clinical trial, um, so obviously you need your patients for it, you need your doctors, you need your protocols for it, um, that's all well and good, but the Canadian government realizes we also need the supply of the materials. So therefore, they started licensing uh, producers to, to make psychedelic mushrooms, to synthesize psilocybin, or to make other uh, psychedelic drugs like MDMA. Uh, and then there's the, the, the third carve out, which is a research license uh, under which we are operating for now. 
that uh, there need to be outside testing or analytics development. Uh, and that's that's the part we are doing. Got it. So as it stands right now, as a patient, the only way you kind of get, are getting legal access to psilocybin is if you're enrolled in one of these trials. Uh, yes, that was true and the only pathway until January 2022. Um, and then the Health Canada authorities expanded it into that for specific complicated cases, one doctor could get one patient onto psychedelic treatments. Okay. Uh, so there is now, in addition to the clinical trials, which are larger, take longer, um, you can now get uh, treated as an individual patient with psychedelics. Got it. Okay. So that's a good that's a good foundation for us to build on here. So when we're look when you're looking at analyzing these these um, these products. What are we actually looking at? Like, how are these products created? Um, I think you, you had mentioned, like, is it a synthesized or an extracted single compound of psilocybin? Or are the mushrooms actually ground up and put into capsules? Or are our patients actually eating the mushrooms like we did in college? Like, how, how is that happening? Uh, I don't know about eating mushrooms straight up in the clinical trial setting or individual patient side. But otherwise all of the above. Mm -hmm. um, so there are producers in Canada and then importers into Canada that would uh, bring or make available psychedelic mushrooms that are grown. Uh, those are mostly milled into powders and then uh, given in capsules. Um, most of the Canadian-based mushroom growers we work with um, or we are in contact with, they are still in a research phase. They are still trying to find out which mushrooms they actually want to grow large for production. They're trying to, to find the right uh, strains or cultivars uh, to produce. I think strains is actually the more correct term in the mushroom right. world than it is in the cannabis world. Um, side note. So uh, they are very early there and like finding the right mushroom they want. And then aside from the milled powdered mushroom, you see basically exclusively in medical trials, uh, pure synthesized uh, psilocybin or other psychedelic compounds like MDMA. Those are synthesized in the chemistry lab from scratch. Um, that doesn't make any difference between psilocybin from the mushroom or psilocybin synthesized, same molecule. So there's no difference. Uh, it is the impurity profile that you get when you consume a mushroom that could be of concern or of benefit, right? We're talking entourage effect here, as we know it from the cannabis world. If that exists in mushrooms, I don't know. We don't know yet. Mm -hmm. uh, more work needs to be done. And the question, is there extraction going on? Yes, there is. Have they really made it in, onto the, the market of clinical trials? Not really, no, it's very early. Um, there are, it seems like all the mushroom growers and are in BC and Alberta, um, yeah. where also all the cannabis growers used to be. 
But um, so I know of one company here near Vancouver that has uh, developed uh, their own extraction methods and supposedly they're, they're very good. Um, and that is an interesting aspect. But uh, in your intro, you made uh, said maybe psychedelics or psilocybin mushrooms might become a recreational product in the future. I highly doubt that. Mm. I highly doubt that. Uh, yes, there is a recreational use already in the subcultures, but I don't see the value proposition of a mushroom trip for um, a social gathering. True. What about and, something like microdosing? And, and psychedelics have such a strong uh, medical potential um, on the psychological side that I'm I'm not sure that it's actually a recreation that it can be a mass market recreational product like cannabis can be. Because intoxication is a psychological effect. Uh, or s intoxication could be like a subgroup of psychedelics. Uh, and now I'm getting properly slammed by, by professionals in that field. But psychedelic compounds are so much more. So I, I have a problem seeing that as a mass market product. But it's, it's a, it has a, maybe it has a stronger claim to fame for medical product than cannabis has. Uh, you mentioned microdosing. I saw a really, really good study from late last year that compared microdosing to the uh, placebo effect and it were the same numbers. <laughs> so they, they sent capsules to study participants and they had to use these ca capsules and then report back. And it was it was a crossover. So some got the placebo first and then the mushroom. Others got the mushroom first and then the placebo. All microdosing mushroom. And then some of them were told if it was the placebo or the mushroom, and others were not told, were not informed. And it correlated stronger to the information than to the than to the, the the mushroom itself. So if the people thought it was the mushroom, they felt an effect way more than people that were not informed and consumed the mushroom. So wow. it's an interesting study. Obviously, it's one. You will be able to find your reference that can claim that microdosing works. But I think it's unlikely to... It's still not conclusive i yeah yeah no that's that's interesting i'll have to i hope you could uh send us the link to that study i'd like to include it in the notes here for anyone who's I will, curious i to will dig it out after it out. this interview yes all right so going back to the different forms that these products can come into um so you as a researcher or you as someone who's analyzing these different products do you know are there unique challenges to the different ways that these can be uh produced um, what do you mean with uh, how they can be produced? Oh, so if it's psychedelic, if it's a synthesized versus the gr uh, grown part, if that is a problem for us analyzing. Correct. So yes, there is. But before we even get there, there is the problem of analyzing. Okay. So um, quick summary, 
chemical analysis works by you are getting your compound of interest into solution and then this this solution is injected into an analytical instrument uh, for psychedelics as for cannabinoids it's an hblc so liquid chromatograph so the HPLC, high-pressure liquid chromatograph. The idea is that you let your compound of interest flow along a tube. So flow, it's in a liquid. Flows along a tube. Uh, these, that tube is packed with, with a solid phase. Um, I warned you beforehand, Porochelle C18. Uh, so basically, it's a packing material. And then the uh, the compound of interest has a like sticks to the packing material, but it also sticks to the solvent. And so it's the ratio between stickiness to the packing material, the solid phase, where there's the, the mobile phase, the liquid, um, ensures it comes along, flows along the column, comes out the other end, and is detected by your detector, which is often an optical detector. So that's how it works. And then you compare the time of the signal you see versus the uh, time the, the compound that it should be is. And if it's the same time, then the area of the signal is your concentration. So you just did the first two years of chemistry. <laughs> uh, but to get further, so we know this all from, from cannabis chemistry and, and from cannabis analytics. And we see cannabis ca uh, laboratories switching over to, or adding psychedelic testing, uh, psilocybin right. testing. There's just way one main problem. Cannabinoids, THC, are fat soluble and they're not water soluble. So all the methods are optimized that fatty compounds come out like after five to 10 minutes. And all the superpolar things like sugar, for example, would come out very quickly at like a, a half a minute. Psilocybin is extremely water soluble hmm. and not fat soluble at all. So all the instrumentation you have or the solid phases uh, in your columns you have have your psilocybin wash out with your injection solvent peak. Like it takes it takes less than a second <laughs> to get your signal out with with the injection signal. So it like it runs through your column so quick that you have no way of like separating it, measuring it, really analyzing it. So you have to switch to different column chemistry. We use Hillic, uh, which is a normal phase, so the fat compounds come out first and the water comp water soluble compounds come out last so that's that's the hilic column we use um, but then in addition psilocybin is a molecule that is normally present as a zwitter ion so uh, the psilocybin has two groups on its its molecule one likes to be positively charged and the other one likes to be negatively charged and so they can actually exchange proton so that they can be both charges at the same time in the same molecule. Mm. And if you add a little bit of acid, then the molecule will overall be positively charged. If you add a little bit of base, then it's overall negatively charged. Uh, and that's just around uh, neutral conditions. So your molecule can come out in three different ionic states. Neutral, hmm. as a Twitter ion, positive or negative. And it does that in most of the cases of the standard analytical methods. And that really screws up any analytical peak. If you think about an analytical peak being like this beautifully shaped like peak, um, 
standard methods you pull out of the literature will give you like a camel hump. Mm. Um, you can't work with this. And then, so summarizing a year of our analytical work here, you can you can make sure that it's just one peak, but then that peak, uh, then you're using so strong acid conditions that actually some of your psilocybin is co is already dephosphorylated to psilocin, so you're testing something else, or you're using just the right meth uh, liquids, but then these liquids break your machine. And you can run your machine for like a day and then you have to repair it for a week. And then you'd run a day and a repair a week. We have done that a, f a few iterations. Uh, so finding the right analytical method to have something robust, reliable, and that doesn't break your machine all the time is really complicated because this molecule is so fidgety. It wants to be in different states. And if you look at it weirdly, it breaks down. Hmm. Uh, talking about the breakdown, we get milled mushrooms from most of the suppliers. And what we find is the suppliers have used a mill that ran a little hot. So they actually dephosphorylated psilocybin to psilocin mm -hmm. already. And uh, obviously, that's maybe not what they want to do. So there is the, the analytics, which are complicated, already show you the way towards problems in production or issues in production you have to think about. Um, why do I even go about psilocybin and psilocin? Which one do we want? Do we want one or the other? Um, for everyone who is used to the cannabis world, you know about THC acid being produced by the plant and THC is what actually gets you high, so you have to convert it. And it's similar in psilocybin that the mushroom produces psilocybin, but the dephosphorylated psilocin is actually the active drug. So psilocybin is the prodrug. And the conversion happens in your stomach. So mm. the stomach acid is strong enough to dephosphorylate. So you could say, oh, let's do it like, like in the cannabis industry, just make THC slash psilocin and just give psilocin to the patients. It's the, the product they actually want. And if milling dephosphorylates already, why is it so bad? Psilocin is really unstable. Uh, so it likes to oxidize, it turns blue, uh, it degrades, mm -hmm. it disappears. So psilocybin, the prodrug, is actually the more stable one. And that, that you can store somewhat longer. Okay. All right. A lot to unpack there. But from what I understand, if I were a cannabis lab looking to get into doing psilocybin testing, it's not as easy as just running... Um, no the mushrooms through what you already have there, you probably going to have to have a dedicated instrument for that. No, um, the instrument itself. No, but uh, you need to change the column. And with that comes a different solvent system. And so flushing out, so turning from the THC method to your psilocybin method um, will take you like half an hour, hour of flushing, mm -hmm. just to like clean the machine in between. So that can be an impediment to, to throughput. Um, the, although the big ticket items you already have, it's just the, the standard operating procedures, the handling, the methods that have to be updated. And it's not that easy. It's not changing cannabis to hemp. It's, it's, it's a different beast you have to deal with. No, and it seems like the material itself is very sensitive, right? And I would think that even preparing that sample, you could inadvertently be 
converting psilocybin to psilocin or or changing that polarity right. of the molecule. So I imagine right. that has to yeah. be considered. And, as and well. a side note, if you mill a mushroom in your cannabis lab, all your cannabis will then start failing for, for fungal contamination. Of course. So you have to consider that aspect too. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, us on the medicinal genomic side, you know, we make microbial uh, detection assays. So um, when we're looking at some of these regulations that are coming out, um, we kind of have to remind some of these regulators that you don't want to be doing total yeast and mold testing on your Mushroom. on your mushrooms. <laughs> You're going to get a failure every <laughs> time. <laughs> but, although we have gotten moldy uh, psych uh, psychedelic mushrooms. Sure. So a mushroom with a different mushroom on it. <laughs> yeah i mean in that case then ducking off psychedelics <laughs> in that case we got to do species specific testing right in, in order to make sure that you know whatever mold's going to be growing on that it isn't pathogenic or isn't you know detrimental in some way right and with that in mind and maybe that's a good segue here that you know in addition to actually testing for the active compound the psilocybin um are there other potential contaminants or um potentially dangerous compounds that could be coming along for the ride? Because I know that there's a lot of different strains of mushrooms and they produce a lot of different compounds. And if you're not careful, they, they could be harmful. So um, have you had any experience testing for anything like that? Right. So uh, twofold. If you do, synth uh, let's do synthetic compounds first. So synthetic compounds might have unwanted uh, impurities in them, solvents, heavy metals from a previous uh, catalytic step. Um, those are often of issue, but generally single compound materials are easy to purify and isolate. So less of a concern. Mushrooms. So while Canada has a legal framework to produce and uh, give them to patients, they haven't yet really built the whole production framework, legal setup of how to how to do this at scale. It's more like small scale, patient focused, not yet anywhere close to what we're used to from the cannabis world with regulations. So producers come to us and it's like, okay, we want this, 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 and this, and this. And I was like, where did you get the idea from? It's like, yeah, we just looked at cannabis regulations. I was like, okay, so the yeast and mold is really hard and please don't let us play this. Uh, and then they are like pesticides and the guidelines are for, for green leaf weed and not for mushrooms. So I'm not sure how applicable the, the pesticide guidelines are in any way. Um, but that said, we are already used to that uh, cannabis and hemp is a bioaccumulator of heavy metals. The same goes for mushrooms. Um, so I'm from Europe. I was born shortly after Chernobyl. Uh, we wouldn't eat, we're like in, in Central to Eastern Europe, you wouldn't eat mushrooms from the forest for decades because mm -hmm. they were, they came with flavor and glow. So, uh, so you don't want that. So, so bioaccumulation of heavy metals might be an issue. Uh, pesticides, we don't really know. Uh, most of them are, all of them are grown indoors under control condition anyway. Uh, then what about wild growing mushrooms? Um, they actually grow here in the BC forests. Like we can pick psychedelic mushrooms in the forest near the library at the university, maybe. <laughs> uh, 
But the problem there is wild-grown mushrooms or mushrooms that were not grown under Health Canada license cannot be used in my laboratory because uh, my license doesn't allow that. I can only work with material that came from licensed lab, uh, producers. So we are currently waiting for our dealer's license not to produce anything, but to be able to go field testing. Mm -hmm. With that license, I can accept material from non-licensed sources like patients that want their mushroom tested, like a secondary test, or I can go into the forest and start looking at mushrooms. Um, find the psychedelics and then find the ones that look like psychedelics might, might have toxins on it. Right. Um, I talked about our methods of how to quantify psilocybin, but that's only the start. Um, we also want to know what else is in there. And, and normal analytics work by you know what you're looking for, you build your method, you look for it, you say yes or no, and then how much. Uh, but it gets more interesting when you start looking for compounds that you didn't expect. So um, the first version is called targeted analysis, and we are actually more interested in untargeted analysis. So um, we have a, a beefed up HPLC mm -hmm. that's a little bit too expensive for my own liking and, and for any normal testing laboratory anyway. Uh, it's an LC QTOF, so I can run samples through it, uh, see everything that's in there. So we ran mushrooms through it, and we see thousands of compounds, thousands wow. of compounds. And you can't go by hand and say, like, I take this one and this one, and I know what that one is. That just doesn't work with the number of compounds you get. So there are libraries, but then we're looking at psychedelic mushrooms that haven't really been studied, so you don't have library uh, hits for it. So we actually developed uh, uh, an artificial intelligence that uses like, it's actually based on language, languaging processing mm. uh, to identify similar compounds and like family trees. So we can now follow psych, uh, tryptamines. So psilocybin is a tryptamine can follow them along and find new tryptamines, find related compounds. We might get a hit of something that's related to a toxin in a different mushroom. So we can now identify those. Um, and that is a really interesting field of study, but it's it's complicated. If you thought getting a good peak of psilocybin through a column is hard, doing that for thousands of compounds gets a bit more complicated. And we are in the early phases of going through it. But our first look on a mushroom, um, when you look at the table, there are seven tryptamines known and you're an eighth you can assume exists just because of structure. We found 14. Like we yeah. found 14 things that look like tryptamines in a psychedelic mushroom. So now we're like, okay, what is going on there? Right. And and that becomes interesting and will grow with with size of, of, of on volume of, of mushrooms we get in different different cultivars different strains will help us so um, I will have a lot of fun in that regard <laughs> so does health Canada sort of limit the types of strains that licensed growers can work with because I know that uh, for example here in the states in Oregon uh, they're specifically limiting the program to um, psilocybe cubensis um, so is yeah, there a similar thing going on in Canada? 
I heard of that in Oregon. That's when you have uh, regulators writing rules without fully understanding wh what they're working with. That never happens. And obviously, they're always perfectly informed and know every detail of it and can foresee every, every future permutation of what the rule will lead to. Um, <laughs> Delta 8. Um, <laughs> so uh, in Canada... That is not the case to my understanding. So I've talked to, to growers and they have gone through 60, 100 different strains of mushrooms and mm -hmm. like trying to find the right ones they want to grow. Um, so I, I don't see that as an issue here in Canada. So here we can still um, grow a lot. But what the, what the Canadian authorities are very interested in is the concentration of psilocybin and psilocin and other psychedelic compounds in those mushrooms. So they need to be given to, to a quite exact number uh, because they don't, they, don't, they don't judge you by how many mushrooms you have. They judge you by the weight of psilocybin you have. Oh, interesting. And you're licensing... Um, it's like based on the value of material you can have on site. So when your mushroom is too potent, you might bust your your allowance in that particular safe. So there, there are interesting um, rules one has to stick to. Great. Yeah. And so and that's interesting that you're starting to analyze what additional compounds are in these mushrooms, because we have to imagine that there's going to be other compounds of interest, right? Um, I mean, I was talking with, with David Meary, uh, out at CanMed and he was, you know, kind of saying that psilocybin is to mushrooms pretty much what THC is to cannabis, um, that it's really just the starting point and there could be any number of additional compounds that might have benefits. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan of David Meary's work and he comes more from the biological side and I come more from the chemistry side and we, we meet in the middle. Um, and he has all the glowing, uh, and amazing uh, work published where I'm just aspiring to. So for me, yes, psilocybin is the THC of mushrooms, right? It's the starting point. It's the, it's the banner molecule. And then there's so much more to find. And so for me, compounds of interest, if it's a compound, I'm interested in it. So everything mm -hmm. is compound of interest to me, but I'm a chemist. Um, you probably define compound of interest as medically effective or some medical response, some medical value to it. To be fair, we are still not there on the cannabis side even. Like, right. it's like there are over 100 cannabinoids, but you can't tell me all the medical aspects that each minor cannabinoid does. So, yeah, psilocybin, mushrooms produce more than psilocybin. There are other tryptamines. There are other architectures of interest. There are even, there are even some sugars. That, that are known uh, specifically to mushrooms and not any, seen anywhere else. And, mm. and carbohydrates, sugars, can have biological properties. So, sure, there's, there's a lot to unpack. Uh, but my job is to just make sure that I draw the right molecule and give you the right concentration. What you do with it, that's where the biologists and, and medics come in. Great. All right. So winding down here, because I do want to be mindful of your time. I'm, I'm curious, what has been the most surprising thing you've learned while working with psilocybin and these psychoactive mushrooms? 
how complicated the regulations are. <laughs> uh, look, we, we have a laboratory that is licensed by Health Canada. We are we are above board. We do everything right. We don't do fast. Like I can I can walk around the corner in downtown Vancouver and buy a mushroom, or I pick one in the wild near the library of the university. But that's not within the licensing system. So just to give you an idea, we started this whole thing of psychedelics summer 2020. Getting the first like real, actual, real mushroom samples into the lab is an eight to twelve month process. Wow. I have to get the I have to get the license. I have to, uh, I have to find someone who wants to work with me. I have to get the license. Then they have to get the license. Then there might be some import stuff because we got some material from Jamaica. Um, then that needs to go through Health Canada, and it's just and then they have questions, and then it's not the right strain or the concentration slide. It's like it's it's frustratingly hard to do work with mushrooms at the current regulated uh, regulatory settings. In cannabis, I go to a website, I order stuff, I, I, my license encompass all that analytical work. I, I buy a joint, I put it on my smoke machine, we do analysis of how much THC you inhale based on the humidity profile of the joint, and I get the answers like two days later. And in a mushroom, getting that answer takes me eight months. Wow. That's frustrating. So that's the most annoying and surprising thing. I did not expect that it's so much harder than cannabis. Um, and the other surprising part is how difficult uh, mushroom analytics is. Like HPLC methods for mushrooms are so much harder than cannabis. It's not even the same magnitude or universe. They are so much harder to analyze wow. from, from the method. And now for the, again, the, I guess the cannabis labs who are, are considering getting into uh, psilocybin and, and mushroom testing, are there sort of established methods out no. there now that they can sort of use no. or they're going to have to figure it out on their own? No. So when we started the project, we obviously did a comprehensive literature review what's out there. So the UN has a method. It's, it's nice. It, it's not good. Um, there are literature methods. We recreated them. We used them on pure psilocybin. So we just no matrix effects that could be an issue. We just run the method as in the literature on pure psilocybin or even on reference standards, and it doesn't work. Hey, hmm. We we went through dozens of methods, and they all don't work, or they are just like okayish, or give you camel uh, bumps, like. Uh, it was frustrating how bad the literature was on this. Um, so we published a method, one method already. We put this on Chem Archive. Uh, it's a good, robust method. We actually made it work for C18 because it's like the easiest adaptable method. Uh, but we already like we're past this. We are a few generations later and we're still working. So if you're a cannabis laboratory that wants to add psilocybin testing, um, either you're willing to throw a year of development work at it um, or um, we are happy to share. Like excellent. reach out, ask us, we might be able to share. Well, that's excellent. And that's, um, 
That's a great service. Um, so hopefully some people can stand on your shoulders and uh, they won't have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, because because we don't do testing. Like, we don't do compliant testing. I don't do high throughput testing. Um, we only focus on like method development uh, or weird analytics. Like we have a smoke machine, a robot that smokes joints. Uh, we have particle sizes, uh, a QTOF. Like we have all the toys for the weird and wonderful stuff, uh, but I don't have the capacity or um, the skill uh, to be given a hundred samples and return them within the week. Yeah, makes sense. And, and there so are very good testing laboratories that do that very, very well. So I'll leave it to them. Okay. And I know I, I said two questions ago, it was my last question, but one more. Um, so given that you're not doing compliance testing and that you're doing some more, more research based, what is the next um, sort of project or, or kind of thing that you're working on now? Is it refining those methods or is there something specific that you're looking at? So we, we obviously always refine methods, um, then obviously uh, refining the method of untargeted analysis and like language AI um, to figure out what compounds are in there. But uh, the next two big focuses, and we are waiting for the right licensing on this, um, is extraction research. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> because e extracting a mushroom is considered production. Even if I'm extracting half a gram of mushroom for analytical purposes, if it's not just analytics, but I'm actually interested in the extraction part, then it's production and I need another license. Hence, <laughs> earlier, what I'm frustrated about. So uh, extraction of mushrooms for an industrial scale is an interesting question that I'm that I'm like to work with and, and help the industry. Uh, and no, you can't just use your extraction method from cannabis. You have to do it again new, similar to the analytical methods. Uh, and the other aspect is product stability. Like in what form do we have to store psychedelic compounds in matrix? in pure form, um, in formulations for patients that we ensure we are actually giving that material to the patient, even if that is six months removed from testing. Mm -hmm. Wow. I don't, those are two, two great focus areas and two potentially great CanMed talks. So uh, we'll, um, sure. we'll look forward to that. All right, Marcus. Well, thanks again. And thanks for staying uh, a little over too to answer my questions about psilocybin testing. Um, but again, one more time before I let you go, please do share um, your website, social media, anything um, so that people can get in contact with you or keep it, keep up with what you guys are working on. Sure. So our website covers it all. We have the links to our, uh, our other social media platforms there and we put all our research articles uh, presentations and podcasts on that website as well, as well as like all the services we do. Uh, it's delic.com, uh, no, sorry, deliclabs.com. Uh, delic comes from psychedelic. So that's the spelling. Labs, the plural form. So deliclabs.com is our website. Awesome. All right. For real this time. Thanks so much for joining us and um, hope to do this again soon. All right. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Marcus Roggin. 
Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Agilent Technologies. We will be back with a new episode on July 20th. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, please do check out the CanMed 2022 presentations and panel videos in the CanMed archive at canmedevents.com. You can also find videos of all the previous CanMed presentations and panels as well. Keep up with us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. And also, be sure to sign up for email alerts because we will be announcing details about our CanMed 23 event later this month. And also, I'll ask again, please do leave us a review on your favorite podcast app to help us reach more listeners. All right, and that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to come back for the next CanMed Coffee Talk.